Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. This next interview is simply amazing in its simplicity. We are about to listen to how Jan Willett was the Director of Events for New South Wales from 2004 to 2021. In that role, Jan was responsible for ensuring events such as Mardi Gras, City to Surf, the Sydney Marathon, New Year's Eve, Australia Day, and the Invictus Games, just to name a few events, were organised and ran to such a successful level that the community of New South Wales did not know that Jan Willett and her team even existed. I give a long introduction to this interview with Jan as I respect her professionalism and skills to such a high degree as she is so modest and humble about the impact she has on others. I won't say much here except for some wonderful leadership gems that Jan shared with us during the interview. When working with a group of people, find something that you respect. With respect comes listening. If you are chairing meetings with different groups of people, have a definite objective and make sure the meeting is action orientated. Human beings crave certainty. And the last one that I particularly love, create a safe place for people to be listened to and respected. I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear as much as I enjoyed interviewing Jan. It was just simply amazing. We have a very special guest um, to a lot of people, but in particularly to me, uh, a lady called Jan Willett. Jan now owns her, um, runs her own consulting firm called uh, Jan Willett Consulting. But I knew Jan as the director of events, um, and I think there was another title of it, events planning and engagement. Or, um, uh, and Jan has done this role uh, since 2004 up to about 2015 for the New South Wales government, and then had a, a kind of a, a different path, uh, still with Premier and Cabinet for a couple of years, and then came back from about 2017 up to when she retired. Um, only recently, um, still di director of events for New South Wales. So, so what that really means for the non-event community, like the beauty, what I love about the Courage to Lead interview series is, um, I, I had someone pointed out to me the other day that you're interviewing people that no one really knows, um, but but at the same time, a lot of people do know who, in particular, Jan Willard is, and and the impact that they had on their lives. So. Um, I'll just give a brief summary about why I wanted Jan on the show, why I wanted you on the show today, Jan. So Jan, um, in that role of Director of Events for, uh, New South Wales, for, the, for the New South Wales Government, had the innate ability to put 50 different stakeholders in a room, all with um, their own objectives and own kind of goals and own probably selfish outcomes that they wanted, and had the ability normally within an hour, an hour meeting, to get those people on the same page. And, it, and it's it's probably the best skill I've ever seen in my life and something that impacted on my life as a police commander. Um, and I think anyone listening to this show that knows you will say the same thing about you. And what, what I'll leave, because I'm going to get into Jan to describe where all this is, but a little personal thing for me is Jan had such a big impact on my life and, and, and that I trusted her so much in, in her ability. When it came time for me, I'd already made the decision in my own head that I was going to retire from the New South Wales Police as a police commander. And the person I went to for advice about how best to do that and how best to plan that wasn't anyone in the police. It was Jan Willard. Um, and uh, so that kind of says what you mean to me, <laughs> a, a, a lot. So it's a pretty long-winded probably introduction, um, and, but I hope um, it gives all the listeners an under, understanding about who Jan Willett is, 
because in the in the in the events world, if you start thinking about what events for New South Wales means, in, that means the City to Surf, it means Australia Day, it means um, all the big stuff that happens, the Mardi Gras, uh, every major event that's happened in the city since 2004, Jan has had her fingerprints on. So that kind of gives you an indication about who she is. Welcome to the show, Jan Willett. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. That's uh, very humbling, and I do hope you took advice from more people than just me. Um, but uh, yeah, look, I've I've been in this space, um, so I did have lots of different titles. But I think in that time, director of events is consistent. Um, so it's interesting that you said um, someone else said people don't know who they are. Well, it's really interesting if you reflect on the work that I did and I, I wanted to tackle today in kind of two parts because I think leadership is typically talked about at the team level and I can talk about that. But I think the one that um, you knew me from was was my external role of leadership. And the really interesting thing about what we were doing, and I talk collectively there of about 30 different government agencies, and it lives on. I'm very pleased to see that the legacy has continued, that that group um, with different people in those um, chairs, so someone from police, ambulance, transport, the opera house, the gardens, um, all of the agencies that are required to make an event go well in the city of Sydney. So um, a lot of that work is actually invisible to the to the punter. Um, it, it, sometimes it's hard to argue in government, in fact, for the work because it's like, well, what are you doing? We're making sure things don't happen. We're making sure things don't go wrong. Um, I, I have to pay great um, regard to John Trevelyan, who was my original boss in this space. I came into, I actually knew John from education um, and then he went into events and was actually leading the um, Sydney Metropolitan Urban Domain side of the Olympics and I ran some workshops for him and then he asked me if I wanted a job. So that was kind of, kind of interesting. So I learned some of those skills from him and I remember saying to him, what's the worst thing I can do? And this was in the in an era pre-social media or when it was only just starting. He said, the worst thing you can do is actually do something that causes there to be a front page story on the Telegraph. So that always stayed in my head. We were trying to stay out of the press, not get into the press. So we weren't trying to publicise what we were doing. We were trying to make sure nothing went wrong. So in essence, managing the risk to government of major events. So providing advice to government, but minimising the risk. And the risks are enormous. Yes, yeah. If you think about what happens overseas, the crowd crush that happened recently in Seoul, if an event goes wrong, people die. So there's a terrible risk to the general public. That in turn flows on to government. Because if government can't manage a major event, it's it's very poor reputational um, impression of the government. Like, what else can't it do? It hasn't yeah. got its act together. Things are falling through the cracks. Why didn't the gardens talk to the opera house? I mean, I've, I've got lots of stories of where things did go wrong, um, and each time we learned from that and how to get around that. Like, sorry, just off the top of my head, one really simple example is we worked on APEC 2007, international event, incredibly high profile, and what you learn is often in events, but I think in other fields as well, things break down on the ground at the lowest level. So police had identified the gates of the Botanic Gardens with one kind of nomenclature and the gardens used a different one. So when something went wrong, the gardens were referring to one, to one gate by name, police referring to it by another. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So then how do you send the resources? How do you resolve the incident? If you haven't got something as simple as a spot on a map being named the same and referred to the same by two different agencies, and mm. you hear that sort of thing happen all the time, but that's the kind of thing that we would learn from and then yep. in future events make sure that everybody's using the same name for the same point on a map. Yep. Um, so 
Yeah, so that's what I mean by invisible. So the general punter didn't know what we were doing really behind APEC. I think they the police had a really strong presence, um, but what people didn't know was all of the other work that went behind that. So what was the role of the fire brigade? Yeah. What was with with those huge fences that were brought in? Um, so all of those um, different government departments have a role to play to make an event, and I would argue many other things that government's in charge of, developments, et cetera, new businesses. Government needs to pull all those different threads together. Same in any big business or big corporation. You've got different sections, and we know as punters when you ring one of those big, you know, telcos or an airline or whatever, and you get shunted around from section to section. That's if anybody ever rings a phone, answers a phone, yeah. or once they start to respond to your emails, it's it's clear that they're not together. You're not they're not working across different areas. So if you want me to talk about um, how I managed to get those different groups to work together, I. I think there's a, to me, the key is respect. Find something that you respect in all of those agencies. There is no way that I could do the job of an AMBO or a fiery or a police officer or someone who's running a production schedule at the Opera House. I can't do that. I had genuine respect for those people around the table. And I would argue anyone can find that. If you're working with a group of people, there's something in all of those individuals that you can respect. If you, if you can like them and they like you, that's fabulous. But I don't think that's the core. The core is respect because then with respect comes listening. What am I really listening for? you got to park your ego at the door. I would argue anytime you're chairing a meeting or facilitating a session, you're not participating. It's incredibly important because the minute that you start to take part in an argument, you start to put your own foot forward, you've lost your neutrality mm -hmm. and you have to be neutral and you have to listen. To And, Alan, back to you, your comment, you then took over the North Sydney group that I used to run, so that was amazing watching that transition I love that it was one less meeting that my team had to organize because you took those over and that's what I watched with you is that you got all of those police people around the room all of those agencies around the room and really listened and asked the questions so what are you doing at if you're leading into New Year's Eve what are you doing at four o'clock in the afternoon what are you doing at five o'clock in the afternoon there's a whole series of questions you can ask people to try and assure that they all have the same understanding. Mm -hmm. But you're asking questions and you're listening. You're not telling. If you start telling, you're done, you're done for, I yeah. think. But what you do do, what what is essential is I think it's a really core leadership skill, is to summarize at the end, like or partway through. Where where are we up to? Check in that understanding. Yep. Are we all on the same page so far? Oh, well, I would say blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay, yeah. we've got to go back a step and check where we lost it. Yeah. Um, so really, really listen, check in for that um, joint understanding, summarise at the end what are the actions. So um, I, I was always proud of the fact we had really strong attendance in those groups. Yeah. And I think part of that was it wasn't just a talk fest. It's like yeah. here's a very structured agenda. Human beings love certainty. Here's a really structured agenda. These are the two goals we're going to achieve out of this meeting. Here's the one-line purpose of the meeting. And at the end, this is what we all agreed. These are the actions. And send that back, whether it's a short email or it's long minutes, whatever, follow through. So then people come back again <laughs> to actually come to the next meeting because it wasn't a waste of time. Yes. They did actually get something out of it, and that gets its own momentum. Well, I didn't think I'd be able to talk that much, Alan, but I'm, <laughs> I'm on a roll. <laughs> I'm on a roll. So, My so topic. You've, um, you've nailed it, what I essentially learnt from yourself and John Trevelyan and, John Trevelyan and, and every other leader that was in or a leader or a participant that was in those meetings from 2004 to 2021 20 when you when you left um 21 yeah 21 um 
So you've taught every one of us, and you talk about a legacy, you've taught every one of us that ever saw you in action how a, how a leader or how a chair is supposed to coordinate all those agencies together, how you're supposed to chair a meeting, and you've just given some gems about that, about um, have a genuine respect, um, listen, ask questions, and don't tell anyone, leave your ego at the door, and don't tell anyone what to do. So my question, and you kind of went straight into it, so I was, I'm happy to let you, I was happy to let you go, but where did Jam will it? Because these skills, <laughs> um, these skills across anyone that's ever gone to a meeting at any level, the the normal thing is I can't stand going to talk fest. Nothing ever yep. gets achieved. Um, that's right. So, so where did Jan Willett learn the skills that you've just because you just it just rolled off your tongue? You just um, gave it so easily because that's how you lived your life as a leader to all of us. Where did you learn those skills? And before you go into that, uh, I'm yep. just going to ask you one other thing that every first every guest on this show gets asked this question. So as you're thinking about that question I just asked you, yep. I want you to jump straight into this one, please. Um, what was your first ever true experience of leadership and why? Uh, my first true experience was being a high school teacher. Um, so I started, I was a kid who just adored learning um, and really didn't set myself a different career path other than teaching and that eventually became history teaching um, in high schools. And the reason I use that example, one, the skills of teaching are incredibly undervalued in this community because if you are not on time, if you can't communicate well, if you don't have good skills, if you can't talk to a group of people and work out how to motivate each one of them, if you can't stick to a plan, you're not going to get your kids through the HSC. And if they're, if they're in year eight or year nine, they're going to give you very strong feedback very quickly <laughs> if you're not doing a good job. They won't be polite about it. Um, so I think that was my fundamental um, leadership experience in running a group because the skills are the same. You have to listen. You have to work out which, where each individual is coming from what's motivating them, what will motivate them to work harder, do more. Um, so I think that's the and, – and I've got to say that my my year of student teaching, so I did a Bachelor of Arts, which I adored, and then I did Diploma of Education, which was the way teaching degrees worked at the time. It was tough. I went out to a high school um, – and I had a supervising teacher who used to go home for the afternoon and leave me to the high school kids, and they knew that. So it was pretty rough, actually. And it the other great thing about teaching is it makes you, or any certainly any decent teacher, um, you have to self-reflect. You can't say, you can't set a test and get pretty patchy results and say, oh, well, they're all stupid. You can't blame someone else. You have to say, oh, that didn't work so well. That lesson didn't go so well. How else can I do it? How else can I make that better? Because you cannot blame everyone else if you're dealing with 25 people. Can't, all those 25 people, in this case 14-year-olds, they can't yep. all be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so you must have done something wrong to have mm -hmm. To have landed there so I think it that's that's a long-winded answer but it, it says a lot actually about where I came from and you, occasionally um... I was gonna say occasionally if I was got a bit tough in a meeting because my team knew my background they'd say ah oh, you look like you're in front of year nine today Jen <laughs> <laughs> it's funny I've never seen you tougher tough in front of a meeting ever so it must have been a rare yeah. thing um you kind of hinted at it. So yeah, you said in front of, uh, if you're not going okay, um, you get very strong feedback from a year eight or year nine class. And if yeah. they failed, um, the only person you could really look at was yourself and self-reflection. Do you want to share a particular story where you had a, an aha moment and you, and you improved? Um, oh, look, I do remember setting a test um, for, I was actually, I taught in country Queensland, so of course I was given year 12 
in my first year out, which is really tough, I've got to tell you, when you have no experience and you walk into a year 12 economics class, which is what I was talking, teaching at the time, and realising that I was pitching at too high a level. So I was being a bit too academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first test that I set, they didn't do well. So it's like, whoa, what have I done wrong here? They, they just, they did not do well. So that's when I kind of really got it mm. that um, I wasn't, and I had great support. I mean, the wonderful thing is that you, you know, along the way, I've had brilliant mentors, including then. You know, I worked with someone to this day. I remember who was who was funny, like really naturally funny. What a gift. Yeah. You know, John Trevelyan we know had that gift but has that gift. But um, I worked with a teacher who was hilarious and he was my, so there were two of us who were year 12 economics teachers and he and I told him, you know, that they didn't, it wasn't going so well and he was incredibly supportive. He said, oh, why don't you try this and why don't you try that? So you are self-reflective but if you're open enough to receive advice, I think I'm only just thought of that line then, I guess. But you have to be a bit, you have to be humble enough to to listen to advice yeah. and not get defensive, which I think I've watched people do. And then they don't, then you don't learn and grow. You have to be able to say, oh, it didn't do so well. What can I do better? Good stuff. So yeah, yeah. I think that was that was an was an aha moment for Good me. Stuff. And it's that thing also of pitching at the right level. Who is it who's in the room? Are we talking to a group of secretaries who are kind of bureaucratically inclined and and is it, is it um, government ministers? Is it um, roll your sleeves up operational people? You know, who is your audience? Yeah. Read the room. Look at, you know, read body language. Are they zoning out? Are they yeah. all on their phones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so where I kind of took you before, what was your first experience at leadership, which you've answered exceptionally beautifully, um, and that's something we can all understand from the, that advice. Where does Jam Willett come from that we we all saw in action? Where did you learn those skills to to be confident enough to get in front of the caliber of people you just talked about, ministers, secretaries? of you know government departments um directors probably and then the egos that come with the police commander a police an ambulance commander and all these other agencies that probably don't like working with police so (laughs) where does where did those skills come from Um, look i I wouldn't say i am actually a hugely confident person um i i learned those skills i mean i think if if you think at 21 you've got all of the bag of tricks you're ever going to need i think you'll fall on your face um I, really listening and really learning love learning hugely curious forever curious um the other thing that i had i think in terms of working with operational people i grew up in the country and I, you know you there i wasn't in a kind of little um bubble in mm. a large city i i mix if you grow up in the country you mix with everybody from the richest person in per, in town to the poorest person, there was no private school, little tiny town. We all went to a, the same primary school, the same state primary school. We were in multiple, I, I laughed a little bit when I had my own children about parents getting stressed about composite classes because there'd be a year four and a year five together. And I thought, well, my entire yeah. primary school <laughs> was in composite classes because we had only three teachers. Yeah. Um, so I, that very grounded, I think, really grounded. And again, great respect, great respect for the pineapple farmers or um, the people who took things to market. And I think Australians in general, maybe people in general, have a very a terrific radar for bullshit. Mm. They they know when you when you're having them on, and yeah. they won't listen. Yeah. And I, I definitely learned that in the country because you can't, you, you can't, um, yeah, you have to be very straightforward or you get okay. eaten alive. <laughs> so when you, um, so let me try and guide you there. So from 2004, your CV on LinkedIn talks about yep. you are the director of planning, uh, yep. director of events from 2004, pretty well through to 2021. Yeah. So 
So that's a unique skill set from being a teacher. Yeah. Where, where do you learn the skills to to direct those people, to coordinate those people and make events essentially as free of risk as they possibly can because people are working together? So uh, who, well, I think... I think there's um, experience comes to bear there because my first event ever was the 2000 Olympics um, and I started in a role that was kind of more of a secretariat kind of role um, and I had no idea what I was doing, quite frankly. I remember saying to to John, I, he said, oh, hey, how are you going, mate? <laughs> Everyone was always mate. And I said, I feel like I'm in a washing machine. <laughs> I'm just getting to, churned around and I have no idea which way's up. Um, so I kind of got dropped in it and nobody during the Olympic, because I only came on in the last six months, yep. no one had time to really give me much guidance and much support. So I just had to read furiously, listen madly learn as much as I could um, and that role um, John and um, later on Robin Cruck who was a senior leader in in DPC I watched them chair meetings learned heaps learned yeah. heaps um, Sonia Stewart was my deputy secretary for a while she always started a meeting with the three things I want to land out of this meeting are bang 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 and it's like oh, that's so good because yeah. people really know why they're there and what you're going to get out of it. Um, I also did a couple of I, – I did quite a lot of professional development over the years. Um, and if this is the moment, Alan, to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a I'm in your hands. Things, yeah, a couple of people I really liked. Um, so I did a um, graduate diploma in public administration and my favourite course in that actually was on leadership because it that was in uh, 2014 and that actually kind of put structure and articulated some of the things that I was doing kind of innately, but it was great to read the theory behind that. I particularly liked there's a, um, a writer from the Harvard Kennedy School, um, Heifetz, and he talks about adaptive leadership. And I think it's really important because it's quite old now and when I first started in the public service, I was in education. I went from teaching into the public service side of education. I mean, it was all, you know, you had a supervisor. You didn't have a manager. You had a supervisor. And people literally bundied on and off hmm. with their time. Um, and it was a, it was quite a negative culture of people yeah. being shouted at sometimes if they got it wrong. Um, and Heifetz... At that time, so I think he's he's back to maybe the 80s or even earlier, said, no, 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 a good leader is somebody who's up on a balcony. So the image that I really retained from the readings um, was you're up on the balcony and you're watching people dance and you're occasionally conducting it, but you're watching the dance play out mm -hmm. between those people. And sometimes you turn up the heat a little bit to get people to interact in a slightly different way. Sometimes you step back. So I really liked him. And then there's another one um, that I liked, which I learned about later, which was the SCARF model of leadership. So David Brock, you might have come across that. And SCARF stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness and fairness. And, I, and they're the things that have been identified that people want. Um, that's what will help motivate them. So I think in those, those coordination, in that coordination space, Alan, I think we were providing people with definitely certainty. Yeah. Okay, so we've got an event on this day. It's never going to change. doesn't matter. You can't say you're not ready. Yeah. We have a common goal as yep. well. I think that was really important. You've got this big event, it's going to happen on this day, we're all working towards making it safe, we're all working towards making it successful. Yep. Um, so certainty I think was really big. Um, I always tried to treat people fairly, so that's the other one I think that's really, yep. and i got to say actually at a team level it's really difficult sometimes. You've got to mm. kind of have it sitting on your shoulder all the time, am I being fair? Um and autonomy. 
Autonomy is just huge. I think, you know, we all know that, that we bridle against it when we don't have autonomy to make our own decisions and Mm. guide our own lives the way that we want to. Um, And if you're turning up to a job every day where the only reason that you do the work is because somebody is looking over your shoulder and that's now that's on teams or physically in an office, you're actually not going to work very much when that authorities removed it you you want people to be self-guided self-motivated to use their autonomy to say this is the goal this is what we're trying to get to how do we get there Mm. and get people's strengths playing to their strengths yeah not highlighting their weaknesses but playing to their strengths to get them there and remembering to praise them (laughs) that's pretty basic yeah yeah i think i i I've just remembered another aha moment, if I can. Yeah, no, I've, I'm sure as you've got your own notes. Um, yeah. And I just want to let you talk because it's it's all there. Like um, you you have you've been across some of the major events that this city's ever seen in Sydney. Um, yeah. So there's got to be heaps. So as they are well, in your head, go for it. <laughs> I'll tell you an aha moment, which is about as far from a major event as you can possibly get. And that is actually teaching my daughter to swim yep. and being deciding that really I didn't need to go to swimming lessons for the first, you know, to the point where I could get her to float because I'd watched um, with my older children, I'd seen them get taught by a swimming teacher and I thought there's nothing they're doing that I can't do. And being in the pool and watching parents in the main mums but parents teaching children to swim and I went haven't heard anybody shout haven't heard anybody yell haven't heard anybody say god aren't you hopeless yeah every time it's like come on you can do it now jump a little bit further straighten your leg a little bit more and it's like that's what human beings respond to is that encouragement recognition of their efforts their contribution they don't respond well. Most people don't respond well, I think, to a punitive kind of um, leadership. So that was an aha moment for me watching this because I just happened to be there teaching her to swim and there were a couple of other parents teaching their kids to swim and I went, we're all doing it the same. And yeah. nobody's taught us to do that. That's a really innate thing to teach a child to try and walk instead of crawl, to teach them to try and swim. You're actually almost everyone will use encouragement rather than any punitive approach. Yeah. Perfect, perfect stuff. And I think that's, <laughs> it's, um, as you talk about some of the stuff you're talking about, it, it comes back down to the basic human instincts, I suppose, and basic motiv- things that yep. motivate us as human beings across any any yep. business, any, and our leadership experience starts at a family level normally um that's yep. where we that's where we first learn and learn it so let's um you've kind of oh, given so a, can i just ref, just one more thing on yeah, that no, keep, keep, the other keep thing going. that i think that we did you and me in those in those meetings you you're creating a safe space so you know if you think about the child in the water there is some innate fear there um and, and you're trying to reduce that feeling of fear so that the learning can get through. Because if people are fearful, they're not listening and yep. they're not learning. So that creation of the safe space is really important, that it's okay to say, I don't agree with what so-and-so just said. You're allowed to do that. You're not yep. going to get into trouble for doing that. You're allowed to do that. You create the safe space to create the conversation. Because yep. if you shut it down, people just won't contribute yes true so, true well something yeah. I, so I, I might take you there then um because you know in as the director and chair of all these meetings since 2004 through to 2021 not every meeting's perfect um no. <laughs> and sometimes what you just said um there is one stakeholder or multiple stakeholders that says to the other stakeholder i or we don't agree with what you just said and yep. that that can definitely threaten the momentum and the outcome yep. of the meeting. Do you want to take us through? Because I've seen you in action. Um, what do you do? What have you? You know, can you give us an example of where it got really ugly or challenging, and how did you manage that landscape? 
Yeah, look, I think um, the one that comes to mind that was really hard when I said before, someone said, oh, you look like then you're in front of year nine. Um, I was asked to take over, this is a fair way back, but I, I did it for a long time, for more than five years, take over a group that actually worked on the events in the Moorpark Precinct. So the Moorpark Precinct is set up in a very strange way that there's a trust over the Centennial Park area. There's a trust over the Sydney Cricket Ground. They don't always agree. In fact, they often don't. <laughs> They're neighbours, but they have different motivation, different stakeholders. Yep. You know, getting a getting a board position on the Sydney Cricket Ground Trust is like Nirvana in Sydney. Like it's it's a closely held um, thing within Sydney. It, it has lots of status and power. Um, so a couple of events went wrong to the point that there was a lot of publicity about it. So people were taking hours to get out of the car park. There was a shimozzle. Basically, police weren't agreeing with what transport was doing and they weren't agreeing with the Sydney Cricket Ground Trust. And then Centennial Park was really angry about where people were parking Um and then the residents were really cranky as well, and the residents um, are generally from the city of Sydney, so it's a it's a really interesting mix. Yeah. Um, so I had to get tough in those early meetings because I walked into a situation where there was not respect, where there was a, a history of downright nastiness in some cases. Um, so a couple of things on that. After the first couple of meetings, I went, "Whoa, this is this is rough." Um, so I decided to, once we'd had a couple of meetings and it it was kind of stabilizing a bit, like bringing in a a definite agenda, doing a terms of reference for the group. Once we had that kind of basic agreement in place about why we were meeting and what we were trying to achieve, took a couple of meetings to get to there. I then thought the group was safe enough to go to each person in front of everyone else and say, where are you coming from in this space? So what is it that your bosses are wanting from you in relation to events in this precinct? And okay. it was just a revelation for quite yeah. a few of people around the table. They had not actually didn't they didn't understand that. They didn't understand why um the SCG might be reluctant to put up a fence here or there or were reluctant to pay for it. Yeah. yeah. Um so and and what the pressure was on Centennial Park from its stakeholders to maintain as much green space as possible. Yeah. Um, they saw themselves, still do, I'm sure, as a protector of the community's green space. It's a park. It's for residents. And then you get massive events who come in on top of that and interfere with that. Yeah. And then the City of Sydney they're getting it in the neck all the time from their residents about people parking out Paddington and things like mm. that. So that was a very successful strategy in that with that group because they they had they did not know where the other was coming from. And once we'd tabled that, one it helped build respect. Yeah. Um, but it was a bit more they could take a take on a little bit more of where the other person was coming from to try and get us to that. And I eventually handed that group back to transport because it was really about traffic, transport and parking. It wasn't yeah. really. Yeah. But I was asked to take it on because every now and again when something hits the media and it's negative, then it becomes the Premier's issue because it's it's kind of outgrown um, its natural portfolio and, and comes in under the Premier to fix it. So, um, It's interesting yeah. you, you I mean, started. That, that's a really good example of, um, so firstly, building respect understanding what where the other person's coming from um maybe empathy a bit of empathy for the pressures that they're under yep. uh, from their own bosses um so let, that you just uh it's funny as we talk I, I when i introduced you when i thought about introducing you there was another uh, point that i i think it was the first time i'd ever come i'd ever met you in action um we were at the sydney cricket ground and you had um oh, it, was a, it was a training day and I'm pretty sure yep. you and Don Trevelyan had arranged it. And you had a number of, um, you had the region commander of the Sydney district mm-hmm. that was there at the time. And you had a number of police commanders that that were doing their roles. And you, the purpose of the day was understanding 
how the Sydney Cricket Ground emptied when it needed to empty and, mm. and the, pre- and the mm-hmm. pressure points and all that kind of stuff. And I'd, yep. Actually, I don't think I've ever seen that done since. And that, so that was a long time ago. That was 2008, 2007, 2008. Um, how did that come about? And, and were, is that part of that time? That, that was definitely part of that time. So that's um, so the people who are members of the Sydney Cricket Ground know how to um, get in the ears of ministers. Um, they were complaining long and loud about their car park and felt that they needed to have um, priority because they were members and they were paying a lot of money for it. You know, you have to be accepted, you have to be get recommended to be a member, and they were really cranky about it. Um, so that was part of that. Um, drive to try and make more park, including cricket ground, work better. I mean, I mm. think it does work better now. But mm. <laughs> to quote one of your colleagues, Alan, it was a that I still really love this quote. He said, "Oh well, you're trying to push custard through a straw." And I always <laughs> remember that. Anytime now, as a punter, that you know, I go to an event somewhere and I'm stuck in the car park on the exit. It's like, yeah. well, you've got tens of thousands of people, yeah, all trying to exit at the same time, yeah. And some of this can be addressed partly through expectation management. So that's one thing transport really stepped up with and still does is lots of proactive communication um, to event goers. You'll see that signage all over the city. And, in fact, you'll see signage about Moorpark event tonight or cricket tonight um, or cricket tomorrow. And it's a legacy from then of, like, trying to manage expectations. Don't think that you can rock up. I think the other thing Sydney grew a lot in the last in, in that last quarter of a century, the huge population growth in Sydney. So people had an expectation they could just drive to New Zealand or they could just drive to the cricket and it wouldn't take them very long or they could just drive to the rugby. Um, and the traffic changed, the population changed. So there's been a lot about managing expectations. So we were kind of on the end of that. We were we were asked by the premier basically to fix it. So okay. that would be where that that would be where that came from. But so just one the, other one in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, go for it, go for it. Yep. Oh, no, I was just going to say when you said not all meetings went well because the other thing that I encountered in that group were and you would have seen this in some of the other groups as well, but people who really wanted to hold the floor, yeah. who were quite bombastic in their opinion. Um. And then you actually have to shut them down. It's that, you know, I said I don't like shutting people down and I definitely don't. Um, But occasionally if someone is trailing off to, and what what you learn, I think, as a a chair is the group doesn't want that anyway. So you're actually on kind of safe grounds to shut down the person who is trying to dominate the meeting and they're kind of out of order. And if as a chair... They're not going to like you. Well, that's a risk you've got to take. Yeah. So you've actually got to go out on a limb and say thanks. You've had your turn. Yes. I, I've actually used those words. Yep. We can take that part offline, but you've had your turn now. And and quickly, quickly. Yeah. <laughs> go to somebody else. I've seen um, you in action that way, and yeah. I think I think what the listeners probably don't like a lot of these meetings. You can, as you've just described, are high level. Um, that will impact on the reputation of the of the government and the premier. Um, yeah. And you, you might have fifty stakeholders in that room, all wanting to talk within an hour, and you get it done. Uh, yeah. And everyone and everyone feels like that they've had a contribution in that hour. So it's a it's a serious skill. So what some some of these things that you're talking about, and you've already mentioned John Trevelyan, and you mentioned a, a couple of other leaders. Yeah. Um, uh, let me get them again. So Sonia, who was my deputy. Yes, Sonia Stewart, uh, Robin Cruck. Yep. So when you when you had these, so, so the example of the um, Sydney Cricket Ground uh, Trust and you had that out of shape group of people that needed to be pushed in a, in a more productive direction. Yep. How did you plan that? Did you already have the skills? Did you sit I down with a mentor? I had some of them. I had, I, I certainly had some of those skills by the time I took on that Moorpark group. Um, but watching, listening and learning 
like watching, I like, so John was chairing the urban domain group for the Sydney Olympics. He was, he did that. So I watched that in 2000 and the urban domain was quite contentious. I think yeah. it was much more difficult than the events happening at Sydney Olympic Park. So the urban domain included things like beach volleyball at Bondi, closing yeah. the city down for the triathlon, for the marathon. It was hard. It was really, really hard. Um, and that, so I watched his skill in that and I took on lots of what he did. And certainly um, when I was chairing meetings, sometimes it would run through my head, what would John say? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and I used to think, well, he'd crack a joke and that's not really my style. I can't, yeah. I'm not nat a naturally funny person. But you can try and lighten the mood a little, I think, yeah. when you can to lighten it a bit. Um, oh, the other thing I think that uh, we did quite well when you said trying to get through, you know, 40 or 50 people in an hour is actually do a time check and actually say, thanks, that's great. We need to we need to pick up the pace. We need to move on. Um, and also if a meeting looks like it's running late, and people really like this, if you're five minutes from the finish and you think, uh-oh, I don't think we're going to get there, you can yeah. actually say to people, I know we're due to finish at 12. I think this many is going to run a bit over. Understand that people have to leave at 12. So you're giving them permission to leave. They don't have to say, oh, really sorry, folks, got to put it in their chat and apologise yeah, yeah. Um, or physically leave. You acknowledge that their time is valuable and that they could have another commitment. You're not assuming that you're the only thing on their agenda today. So I think that that helps as well. Good stuff. Um, so it's... So let's... Anyway, as you talk, it's just prompting me. So you just said um, if you have a bombastic person or you have a contentious mm -hmm. issue, you either lighten the mood or one of the other tactics you said, uh, let's take this offline. Yeah. Can you think about, because I've seen you and John in action offline, uh, John Trevelyan yep. and yourself offline on, on issues. Can you think of uh, a meeting, a high-level stakeholder meeting that needed to be taken offline and how you resolved it then? Um, yeah, I look, I think, um, and I, I was actually accused sometimes of taking too much offline. Um However, if the, those bigger groups that we had, I mean, the purpose was to share and develop planning. That's what we were doing. We weren't trying to, and we made this very clear, we weren't trying to resolve very detailed aspects of an event. So a transport management plan, for example, where, where you actually talk about this is how we're going to close that intersection and we're going to have a, a yellow and black barrier board there and we're going to have two police here yeah. and one security there. We didn't do that in yeah. those bigger meetings. And so making the differentiation and it comes back to the what's the purpose that you're yeah. trying to do here, so what's the purpose? So that's the sort of stuff that I would say, oh, okay, that's that's more detailed. Can we take that offline or can we refer it to the traffic group? So there were, you know, smaller groups that did that kind of yep. detailed work. Or sometimes when something was very contentious, so um, there was a New Year's Eve where um, the relationship between uh, police and trains broke down um, mm. because trains didn't provide um, sufficient advice in a timely manner. Um, so that was one definitely in the when we had the debrief of the whole event, we said, and separately, I actually did it in a proactive way. Yeah. Said we know, and I recognised that there were there was an issue between police and um, Sydney trains on the night that is being dealt with separately because mm. that actually, and sometimes if you know something's really murky, you can actually have a meeting beforehand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or phone people ahead of time to try and get them to vent out of that. Because um, you want to try and keep the the tempo of the meeting to be quite professional. Yeah. And if you've got a situation where you might wind up with a slanging match across a table, if you know that's possible, ring them ahead of time. 
hey, I know this is such and such an issue, blah, blah, blah. I'm just wondering where you're coming from or if that's moved on since we talked last. Try and head it off yeah. at the pass. But, yeah, it's small and size of a meeting matters. So if you've got 40 stakeholders, that's one kind of meeting and one kind of tempo. If you've got a really contentious issue, it's better, it's really better if that's done either by phone or it's, you know, tiny number of people together to talk that out because you're not exposing them in front of a whole bunch of people. You're much more likely to get a good result from the smaller if it's a really contentious issue, small is good. <laughs> okay. So what yeah, do you I think, mean, Mr. Police? What do you think, Mr. Trains? Okay. So what do you think is the way forward? What do you think is the way forward? And there's probably common ground in there somewhere. Yeah. Can so you a, give a that becomes ex- medi- that becomes almost a mediation exercise? So can you give it? And it's like you're coming up with all these skills. Um, so can you give us provide an example of of a mediation ex- exercise where you've um, you've pushed something's progressed forward that was blocked? Yeah, um, Mardi Gras start area. You know the Mardi Gras poor Mardi Gras is in a in a situation that parade has been hit hard by changes to light rail, changes to College Street, changes with bike lanes, um, and they have such a tradition that goes back to 1978 that means that there's there's resistance to change because Mm. they're very, very entrenched traditions. Um, So getting a group of people together and just defining what success looks like. So it's a bit like sharing where you're coming from and what do your bosses expect of you. Um, So for you, Mardi Gras, what success look like? Oh, it's easy for the floats to get there. People feel safe. Um, so it's those sorts of things um, for transport, minimum disruption to the flow of the traffic. So everybody's got a different um, point of view around what success looks like. Yeah. So, okay, these are the givens. This is what success looks like for you, you, you and you. Mm. What what is what's your idea about what a good start area would look like? You've got to give this time, though. This isn't something you can rush. Yeah. And it might be that you do it. You might take an hour and a half and you might need to meet again for another hour. Or then you have a little subgroup that says that we've agreed in principle that it's going to move. The start area is going to move to College Street. Now a smaller group is actually going to work out how many floats you can fit in that street, what's the flow. So that kind of very fine-grained operational detail, a smaller group might work that out. But together um, you can work out a a, a path forward and okay. in principle okay the start area will move to there all right yeah. so i think um you've you've exceeded more than i could ever hope for um in in the knowledge that's in your brain um and experiences about doing something as you said that people i think you call them the punters the public don't have no idea that's really going on behind the scenes but it's really complex uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's re- complex. It's, hu- it's hugely complex. Can you finish with this? Um, I'll, to I'll, I'll ask you something at the end about you know what's what's your advice to a, to anyone else embarking on on a leadership journey in any and in any arena. Um, and any arena means dealing with people, really. So uh, you, you've kind of done that at the pinnacle. But um, is there some event or something that you hold on to? that you're particularly proud of in your role as Director of Events for New South Wales for such a long time? Um, Yeah, there are, and probably not, they're not leadership comments so much as I just think, you know, you're always a a small cog in in a big wheel, but I think particularly for the Invictus Games and for Sydney World Pride, I hung in there with those events. There were quite a few people in government who were not um, behind the idea of because they weren't necessarily going to generate massive international tourism. Yeah. And I could see a, a value in that because I think what we haven't mentioned here is that I also was a bridge between government and the events and the event 
organisers. They were absolutely crucial to all of this working well and trying to make sure that because it's pretty easy for a relationship between an event organiser and a government agency like the landholder where it's being held or the police, so it's pretty easy for that to break down. And I'm really proud of the fact that um, I helped grease the wheels between event organisers and government agencies so that they could work together positively and for it to. So those two events in particular, I really led those for government. So, and, yeah, and we'll, we'll and we'll prize Hopefully just about I can the start. still say that in a month's time. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, they're big ticket stuff in the world pride. Um, I've done my own research on that. It's it's massive the impact it it's has huge. on a country, uh, on a on a on the city where it's held. Um, the flow on um, is quite amazing, really. So well done to you. Like fancy the comment uh-huh. that uh, what's what's in this, what's in it for us. It's huge. <laughs> the um, well, I, the goodwill. I think those two events, those two events in particular, because. Um, both of them have a social, like I started as an educator, both of them have a social policy purpose. So there's the economic policy side of events, which is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons government's behind them, because it generates tourism. Um, it's an ad for the city, generates visitors. But Invictus and World Pride, they were about a lot more than that. So Invictus yes, was yeah. raising awareness in a big way about the plight of veterans, um, particularly returning uh, veterans who had injuries. Um, And then World Pride is inviting people from around the world to actually highlight that it's still illegal in lots of countries to live your life that way. Um, So for those, that's the reason I'm particularly proud of those two. It's not just about events and having a party. It's actually about raising public awareness of those issues. Well, I'm... um... You just nailed it. Why? Why I wanted you on the show. You know, leadership's so much more about more than who you are. It's about about what you can influence. Um, and I think you've just given a two kind of world what world level um, reasons why you're particularly proud of what you do and you continue to do. Because I know for the listeners, you're on the um, I think you're on the board for. I'm on the board for, of World Pride for, for which World is Pride. Lovely. Yeah. So to be asked and and recognised as someone who can lead a better outcome uh, for that because of your skills is a huge acknowledgement of your skills. So let's finish it um, with what would you... It's been a blast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been easy. Like just for the listeners, Jan originally said, well, what can I offer Um, (laughs) to to any listeners uh, on this show? And I think we've all just heard about what you can offer. What would be your last bit of advice for someone embarking on a leadership journey, uh, particularly in the field that you're in, but probably overall? Oh, I think be humble. I know that sounds a bit trite and there's lots of stuff around this week because Jacinda Ardern has resigned about being humble and kind, but if you're not humble, you're not going to listen. Um, and I, listening and I think listening is the, is the key to good leadership, not talking, it's listening. I think we can leave it with that. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a beautiful um, final quote. So thank you, Jan Willett. Thanks, for being Thanks part for the, of the opportunity. It's been fun. No, it's been a lot of fun. And, and, and what I particularly love is anyone that's worked with you over the last, since 2004, knows what you've contributed to all of our professional and personal lives. Um, so it's wonderful to shine a light on the skills that you you have personally, but how you've enriched all of our lives. Um, so thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Alan. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. Well, how good was that? I think we just witnessed true leadership in action and probably true humble leadership in action. The final leadership gem says it all. A good leader should be humble because if you are humble you are listening and listening is the key to good leadership not talking. Boy oh boy some of our political leaders and some of the commentators that we hear could take a leaf out of that book. I'll repeat that again. 
Listening is the key to good leadership, not talking. Thank you so much for listening today. And another thank you to Jan Willett for such um, simple leadership gems. Until next time, thank you for listening.